You're listening to The Dollop. This is a bi-weekly American history podcast. Each week, I, Dave Anthony, read a story from American history to my friend. Gareth Reynolds, who has no idea what the topic is going to be about. Keep up the pace. What? No, you don't get to tell me I'm the pace about... car. No, you're not. No. I started out. You follow. No. No, because you, as the pace car, you've been dead for a lot of days. Over and out. It's not a, that's not a saying for this, either. God, you want to hit a dude? I'll do one bottle. <laughs> People say this is funny? Not Gary Guerra. Dave, okay. Someone or something is tickling people. Is it for fun? And this is not going to become the Tickling Podcast. Okay. You are Queen Fakie of Made Up Town. All hail Queen Shit of Liesville. A bunch of religious virgins go to mingle. And do what? Pray. Hi, Gary. No. I see done, my friend. No. No. <laughs> March 4th, 1877. Oh, wait. Should we talk about the book real quick? Yeah. Uh, let's just say this, that we have a book coming out in May. We just want to, we were saying before that we weren't, sh- we, I don't, we don't know if we fully set expectation as to what the book is. We just want to let like people know that they are uh, 95% stories we've covered on this podcast they're kind of with, condensed versions of it with amazing new jokes. art by James Foster. That's some new jokes we threw in there. Oh yeah, there's totally new jokes. Yeah, we've written stuff. a lot of no, stuff. No, I think it's, I think it's like good. I, I mean, truly, like I, I think if you like the podcast, you'll like it, and if you don't, you'll if you don't know the podcast, you'll probably be like, what the hell's going on? I actually think it's a if you, it's actually a cool way to sort of introduce someone to the podcast if you if you. Because like, a lot of people are like, I want to get someone to listen, but it's hard. Yeah. The book, the fucking art is crazy. But, well, that's you know, the, the that's stories the, are. The, yeah, the stories are the same. There's different. I mean, yeah, they're, you know, they're, they're funny for sure. And the art is. Uh, the, the art, art is, is amazing. It's great. Uh, March 16th, some of you said. Uh, Mar- March 4th, 1876. March 4th, 1876. I mean, you blew that. What is it? March 4th, 1877. 77. Garrett, uh, I want to thank uh, hmm? Elizabeth Bushy for helping me out with the. Uh, Okay. Yep. This is a story about research. Me. Yeah. Oh, I should also say I think we're going to get a, a GoFundMe going for uh, Tim Anderson, the boxer, uh, from episode eighty-three, I believe, who uh, who is in jail for life. Yeah. Uh, but I think we're going to try to get a GoFundMe, try to possibly get. That's great. He's been in jail for over twenty years. How about some clemency for the fucking dude? At this yeah. Point? Just totally unwarranted. That. Yeah. One. Anyway, uh, there'll be more about that. Um, uh, there's a. Uh, a, a YouTube video that uh, I put up on the Facebook page that surfaced after 25 years that is the fight in which he was drugged that totally fucked up his life. Uh, and so you can see him being drugged right, and yeah. like how fucked up he is during right. the fight. All right. Uh, March. Garrett Augustus Morgan was born in Claysville, Kentucky. His parents were mixed race and uh, were special targets of racism. From whites hating them for being black to blacks hating them because they were the product of white slave owners and slaves. They had it all. <laughs> all the upside. You lucky bastards. Oh, you guys. Everybody hates you. Uh, you can't look at your cake or eat it either. Garrett's father raised him with a keen awareness of the racial bias they uh, would face. It's when Morgan, pretty easy when you're like, why yeah. do they keep saying that stuff? Everything. Like, oh, I have to teach you lessons. Daddy, why does everybody hate me? Ah, because we're in the worst era ever, son. When Morgan was 14 in 1891, the KKK was uh, running around 
in Kentucky, terrifying all the blacks in Kentucky, burning crosses, lynchings, uh, you know, the usual, the standard good time. Cool Klan stuff. On top of that, normal uh, clan stuff. The houses where they lived were made of dry second or third hand wood, and there were frequent fires. Good. So they lived in these shitty places that burned easy, and <coughs> yeah, so often they made the they KKK's job super easy, super easy for their shenanigans. Yay, clanigans. When clanigans. Uh, when he had a fifth grade education, Morgan uh, decided to leave. At 14 years old, which apparently is the time it's a hot age this week. when you get out, yeah. uh, he moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, completely alone, Okay, uh, with very little money, although he quickly found work as a handyman. Okay. Morgan also knew he needed to go to school to get ahead, but he couldn't because he worked during the day. So well, Yeah, he was just in school. Right, that's his I true. learned a valuable lesson from being a handyman. School helps. <laughs> Uh, so he hired tutors and mastered subjects from his home. Okay. I mean, that's pretty impressive. For yeah. Him. He also learned that's, various... That's where our education system, I think, is headed anyway. Oh, yeah. He also learned various skills he believed uh, were good for business. But the, the old problem, the Klan, was back. The Klan now spread into Cincinnati, and with it came the lynching. So Morgan got the hell out of town... And this time, headed to the beautiful city of Cleveland, where what? he where he arrived Where's that city again. Where he arrived on June seventeenth, or as we call it, Dollopsville, <laughs> eighteen ninety five. So, uh, not a huge bi- uh, black population in the city at the time. Were the clan was the clan lighting the rivers on fire at the time? Uh, that's a natural. Uh, oh, okay, yeah, right. Uh, there were. Uh, 310,000 people living in Cleveland. Okay. 3,000 of them were black. Oh, boy. So that's uh, less than what is known as 1%. Mm. Morgan got a room and began looking for work in uh, this new, less lynching city. He went to business after business, and they all kept saying the same thing. They did not hire black people. But then he came across a business who was willing to hire him, Roots and McBride, a sewing machine factory. He was hired for $5 a week, and he's now 17 years old. Okay. Which is about $135 a week now. Okay. It's not great. No. Morgan was fascinated by sewing machines. Who isn't? Well, yeah, he better be. (laughs) (laughs) Wow! He taught himself to sew and soon learned how the machines worked. He became so knowledgeable that the factory owner promoted him to repairman which was actually a job in great demand. And Morgan didn't just just repair. He also figured out how to improve the sewing machines by inventing. He came up with a new belt fastener he made that was so good, it sold in 1901 for $150, which would be over $4,000 today. Okay. So he's a fucking smarty pants. Yeah. Now, at this time, Cleveland was the shit. Not, I mean, not it was shit. not shit. It was the fucking, shit. It, was it was a great, great. city. Okay. From 1901 until 19, uh, the 1915 mayoral election, Cleveland expanded city services. A public streetcar service was established, an electric light plant, and even revamped taxes to benefit working people. <coughs> okay. Very un-American. Yeah, no. It's, uh, well, that's what I love about it, too, that it's a 14-year span. It's like, for 14 years, <laughs> Cleveland had a boom. <laughs> 
For 14 years, there was a city in America that did not shit on working people. Over 200 years ago, Cleveland had quite a run. Americans everywhere were praising Cleveland as one of the country's best governed cities. Okay. And then Harry Davis ran for mayor. Harry was the son of Welsh immigrants. Okay. What do you want? Don't shoot me daggers. What did I do? My name's Welsh. My parents are English. Huge difference between those two countries. Okay, there's, very, there's, no, there's, no, there's no similarities between those two. Come on, Dave. You look and sound crazy. Oh, shut up! Sorry, I should have. <laughs> His father went uh, from being a steel worker to an elected official in the Ohio's... Uh, State House of Representatives. That is a. So his dad is doing well. You just put a cow on the uh, couch. That's a cat. Yeah. Well, it's black and white, and it's got udders. Doesn't have udders. Hmm. He's a majestic beast. What if I? Don't mess with it, dude. Come on, he's comfortable. Leave him alone. There's a soft. There's a very soft part underneath. He's all soft. Bottom part. Look at him. He's so sweet. Why you don't pet his eyes? He likes. Uh. So Harry got rich starting his own phone company and got himself elected uh, the treasurer of Cleveland with his connections. Okay. He now had sights on mayor. This was his second attempt running for mayor. Harry was the conservative Republican running against the populist incumbent's handpicked successor. Okay. Harry's opponent was against everything Harry stood for. The other guy supported union workers, wanted tax laws revamped to help the poor immigrant areas, and a 250-hour minimum wage. But Harry was a charismatic, flashy car salesman-style talker. Great. Well, I think we know how this story ends. <laughs> he wins! His opponent was down to earth from the hip speaker. When he was at a German uh, festival, he tried to speak German but blew it and accidentally said he was, quote, with the Kaiser... <laughs> Whoa, okey dokey. Well, don't try anymore. I'm a Nazi liking. Hmm? What happened? The newspapers were on the side of Harry's opponent, so they did not report the comments at all. Okay. Wow. So Harry sat on it. Okay. Then, two days before the election, 60,000 copies of a brand new four page newspaper calling itself The Loyal Citizen. Featured a Kaiser helmeted cartoon of Harry's opponent with his comments on the front page. Two days before he invented a newspaper to break the story of how his opponent is like an asshole. Correct. Wow. (laughs) I mean, if you if you're like, I mean, you've just got to be like, wait, he did what? (laughs) Oh, well, he's my hats off to him. I mean, that is. Oh, he's going to get shit done. Wow, that's great. Good for him. This is our guy. Good for him. Um, they, they they were. Translated into five different European languages for all the people, all oh the immigrants, my God. and distributed to the uh, poor guy's key immigrant demographics. Okay, people were outraged, and he had no time to recover. Yeah, two days before it was the only issue the loyal citizen ever put out. <laughs> what I mean, on top of that, Cleveland had the dumbest balloting system in the history of the world. It was called Buckland Voting or Single Preferential Balloting. Okay, here's how it worked. First, voters would choose first and second choices and also give approval votes to other candidates, meaning technically a voter could go in and vote for everybody. Wait, so... So they put 
they put a first and second in, uh-huh. but then they're like, but I like them all. And then they put the rest in, but the first and second are weighted, right? Wow. But only one candidate Ridiculous. could receive, only one candidate could get a first choice vote. So you had to pick a first choice. Uh, okay, right. If no candidate received a majority of first choice votes, all the second choice votes were added to the total that that candidate received. I don't even know what's happening anymore. <clears throat> so they've added up. So if no one got it's ahead, cumulative. If no one got a majority of first choice votes, then they start adding in the second choice votes. How could nobody get a majority? Uh, I think like like oh maybe over fifty percent majority. Like oh that, okay, so. all right. Um. So the candidate with the highest combined total of first and seconds, if this amount was greater than fifty percent. Or of the first choice votes for all the other candidates. Okay. The candidate with the highest combined total. I mean, this is so total, stupid already. Well, it's amazing. The candidate with the highest combined total of right at first and second. Right. Well, one. If, if that amount was greater than 50% of the first choice vote voters for all the other candidates. So he had to have. This reminds me of when I was taking the SATs and I would read a question. For the fifth time and still have no idea what anyone wanted me to do. So if after all that, if there was still no majority winner, (laughs) the other choices, approval votes would be included in the tally. So now they go. So now they go to those other votes that are after the first and second. (laughs) No, no, no. Look, yes, it will take longer, but it's more ineffective. then the candidate with the highest number of overall votes would win, whether or not it was a majority. I, I don't. I mean, it just sounds insane. It's completely insane. Uh, and, and like a lot for the people who had to count the ballots. They were like, wait, no, no, no. But he's got two seconds I'll, now. I'll post this on Facebook and people still won't be able to understand it. Okay, great. And anyway. I think is, I understand Enron better. Anyway, this is how Harry won. <laughs> well, I, because did everybody else – like – Everybody else was like, we don't even care anymore. This is just so annoying. Just stop. Just Please. let him, let let, him have don't it. Don't let him count. The other guy had more first choice votes, but it wasn't greater than 50% of the other candidates. So Harry became mayor and Cleveland's golden age of good government was over. Harry was also your typical racist of the time. Once declaring that an area of town had developed into a vice District because, quote, Negroes are naturally degenerate. Oh, God. Now, uh, uh, now back to our hero, uh, the black man, Garrett Morgan, who continued to do well. He accepted a uh, machinist job at the Prince Wolf Company, becoming their first black machinist. There he met a Bavarian seamstress, seamstress, Mary Hasek. They fell in love. Okay. And one day, a supervisor... I always knew he'd end up with a Bavarian seamstress. Right? And then one day, a supervisor noticed them uh, chatting very... hmm. Uh The supervisor warned Morgan that it was absolutely not allowed for black men to speak to white women. It's amazing because, like, part of me was like, is this going to be fraternization? (laughs) Is he going to be like, you can't date your coworker? Come on! But instead, he's like, come on! You're black! No! <laughs> so uh, Morgan listened politely and then immediately quit. 
With the money he'd been saving, he rented an office space a few blocks down from Prince Wolf and opened his own sewing machine repair shop. That's great. He obtained That's... a patent, and then so he got his own patent for a sewing machine, and right. business is booming. Then he married Mary, and uh, they built a house. In 1910, Morgan and Mary opened a tailor shop and added a clothing line. Now, one of the problems with sewing machines was that woolen fabrics would get scorches by the sewing needles because they move so fast. Okay. So to deal with that, Harry, uh, Morgan started experimenting with uh, different kinds of lubricants and oils. And then he accidentally discovered one mix turned the wavy fibers on textiles straight. Okay. Morgan then borrowed his neighbor's curly-haired Airedale dog. And he applied. <laughs> he applied What's the pitch on getting the dog. He applied. I need. The, I have a machine. I need to try on it. He applied the concoction. Okay. And brought back the dog with completely straight fur. It worked. No, it didn't. What did you? What? It worked. Your dog looks like shit. Yeah, he looks exactly. You're thank. You're welcome. I mean, but don't thank yourself and don't you're welcome me. Thank me and you're welcome. Get your out dog of here. Looks terrific. Jesus. He then tried it on his own hair. It worked. And it seems safe. Morgan then sold the mix as hair straightener to African Americans. Okay. He's an inventor, dude. The, I, I mean, yeah. I'm still... It made him super wealthy. Wow. Okay. Uh, G.A. Morgan's hair refiner made the couple rich, and now they had financial security. But Morgan never stopped thinking about the fires from his childhood. Especially as he noticed the tinder box-like houses in the ghetto areas of Cleveland. So he started to develop a safety helmet for firemen. Oh, wow. He wrote he wanted to, quote, provide a portable attachment which will enable a fireman to enter a house filled with thick, suffocating gases and smoke and to breathe freely for some time therein and thereby enable him to perform his duties of saving lives and valuables without danger to himself. Wow. So he filed a patent in 1914. His idea was a vast... He just straight up invented like an oxygen tank? Yeah, he just is like a fucking crazy You know, that makes a lot of sense. It wasn't wasn't an oxygen tank exactly, but whatever. But still, like even like playing in the realm of like an apparatus where someone can breathe in a smoke-filled room. It's crazy. No one's thinking that. Yeah. No one. Uh, So he filed for a patent in 1914. His idea was a vast improvement on existing smoke helmets. His device protected the face with an effective covering and used tubes allowing cleaner air from the lower floor to reach the user. So he came up with – that's what he came up with because smoke goes high. Mm -hmm. So he realized that if you drop a thing down to the ground – Yeah, it is really smart. But it's also like you know like four years before that doctors were going like – the only way to not get sick during a fire is to smoke right through it. That's right, Chesterfields. The only cigarette firemen smoke when they're fighting fires. <clears throat> uh, current smoke helmets being used were metal and required cumbersome gear on the back, which exhausted all the firemen. Morgan's device was light and very simple. Okay. But getting the word out was a problem. He knew white southern fire departments wouldn't even take them for free from a black man. <laughs> Good. I mean, honestly. You think I want to live? Look, you got a great helmet. You invented something awesome. The truth is it would probably change protocols around here in other departments. Yeah. But you're black. So 
Gonna let the men die. Good to meet you. Take care now. <laughs> so, so Morgan hired white actors to sell the devices for him. I mean, this is like he's out whiting the white. <laughs> At a demo in New Orleans for the International Association of Fire Chiefs, he hired a white actor who played the inventor while Morgan played Big Chief Mason. Oh, Morgan, dude, he not, I mean, he's like, I need to be typecast. Yeah, I'm going to act really stupid, and yeah. you act like the smart white guy. Sorry, but I don't understand what's happening. Oh, I put on helmet and go in smoke. I'm the inventor of the, like, the white Fuck guy. Him. He erected a teepee and filled it with smoke then put on the mask and wore it inside the teepee for 15 minutes. When he came out unharmed, everyone there wanted the masks. Right. The mask won an award at the New York Safety Exposition, but Morgan didn't accept the award. Instead, the white actor did. Okay. Still, Morgan was happy the mask was making a difference. Fire departments all over the U.S. were now using it, and Europe too. Even coal miners were beginning to explore its usefulness. The U.S. Army also had a slightly redesigned version of the Morgan mask during World War I. So now the city of Cleveland <clears throat> had water issues. Early pioneers didn't connect cholera and malaria outbreaks to the very dirty Lake Erie and Cayuga River. Right. I don't know why. I don't know why everyone's dying. The water's... No, it's nothing to do with the water. Well, no. the water's like black. Yeah, exactly. The yeah. water's perfectly pure. It's black. No, the problem's the food. Wait. The bratwurst? Everything. All the food. You but know? What the, but the water... Uh, it's lettuce. It's, it's tomatoes. Thick, it's, it's, like, uh, it's like a clam chowder consistency. I know. Kinda. It's delicious. I love thick water. But when people drink it, then they immediately get the diarrheas. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're saying, though. No way, it's the water. <laughs> so, so the river was uh, polluted by the industrial sector and all the people probably shitting in it. I don't know how it worked. But by the 1860s... Well, by the way, I mean... I'm throwing stuff well, in. Well, yeah. I mean, this is also, when they were throwing their fucking shit pots out the dude, window. But, it, like, now, like, we, you know, we now know the problem and we still don't mind, like... That is true. You know, like, yeah. the, I mean... Well, let, let's just be thankful we're getting rid of the EPA. But uh, by the 1860s, the filth became too obvious, and the Cleveland Waterworks was begun. So these would be tunnels built from the shoreline out to the lake to bring fresh, clean water to the people of Cleveland. Okay. The first crib, which is what it's called, a crib, it's a 300-foot-long, 4-foot-diameter cast iron pipe, which was open on one end, was installed from uh, the old riverbed to a depth of 12 feet. So they would they would put these... It was like a thing that they would put down so there was oxygen in there mm -hmm. and then they could build a tunnel, right? Uh -huh. And so they're doing a 300-foot one first to get... that. Like the, so it's it's further out so the water's supposed to be cleaner, right. right? Can we shoot a show called Cribs where it's just showing us those big pipes? <laughs> yes. Thank you. Water was cleaned and pumped through the pipe uh, to the city's first reservoir. Fourteen years later, in 1870, that was not no longer enough water. Work was begun on a new tunnel, which was dug from the new crib 9,000 feet from the shore to a pumping station in the city. The guys who worked on the tunnels digging like moles were called sand hogs. Okay. 
They were almost all Irish and German immigrants. Oh, man. Two sandhogs died when one smelled gas and lit a match just to be sure. <laughs> Wait. Now, I would never say that it was this man's time or that it's not a loss. But he lit a match to see if he smelled gas. Do you smell that? Uh, I mean, that is... Do you, smell, do you smell something funny in here? Hold on. Let me light a match. Let's okay, see. good. Let's see what... Yeah. Turns out, yeah. Yeah. Oh, shit. There was a problem. I don't have a head. You're just in heaven next. Oh, hello. Oh, you know, I turned that was oh. probably gas. Oh, did you light a match too? And now, the more I think about it, the more I think, you can't see what I tried to see. Yeah. <laughs> well, oh. egg on me face. Uh, in May 1898, they began a new tunnel further out. The Sandhogs were digging, digging 6,300 feet offshore when they hit a natural gas pocket, which exploded. Yes. Eight of the sand hogs were burned. The injured crawled to sand thou- bacon. That is sand, but yeah. Well, um, when I get to it, they're going to eat them. The city of Cleveland has a giant party and they eat these guys. That's good. It's called the Bacon Festival. So the injured guys crawled 2,000 feet up the tunnel. They had been blown about two thirds of the way there by the blast. Uh, and then when they got close enough, their fellow sandhogs dragged them to safety. But they were all far too injured, and all eight died the next day. Wow. Two months later, in the exact same tunnel, there was another gas explosion. Eleven sandhogs were killed this time. So that, that tunnel they sealed off. Okay. Like, well, 19. You know. That's a lot of guys. I think that's when we shut it down. I mean, even though they're Irish. Right. It's still. Yeah. Uh so 11 Sandhogs are killed. Uh, tunnel sealed off. So two new cribs were then brought in, and the sand, uh, Sandhogs began to dig two new tunnels. All right. Well, it's let's not fun. learn anything. It's going good. No lessons. On August 14th, 1901, one of the cribs caught on fire. Five Sandhogs were burned to death. Another Jeez. five drowned when they jumped into the lake to get away from the fire. Whoa. That's... What about learning how to swim if you're going to do a job in the water? Yeah. I'm going to go in here. Oh, no, I just oh, realized. Oh, shit. I don't have arms or something. I don't know what's happening. Oh. Oh, no, these are arms. You know, the problem is. Oh, shit. I'm not, I'm not burn proof and I can't swim. Oh, I thought I wouldn't burn. Right. Also, water. One week later, an older veteran Sandhog, Gustav Van Dusen. Oh, I've got a Gustav Van Dusen for you, Usen. You're cruising for a Dusen. No, he's Irish. Oh, well, I'm an imposter. This whole time, I wasn't even German. I was Irish. Uh, so he was doing repairs on the bird crib when he heard a soft tapping coming from the wrecked crib shaft. Okay, well, knowing the track record of what these are like, if you hear anything weird, go. He called over to another sandhog, and they listened, trying to figure out what it was. That's the end of them. And then they found two starving survivors of the uh, fire the uh, week before. Uh, uh. Oh, hello. How are you? I've eaten one of us. So, we started with far. So, now we're just one fat. Hello. Hi. You might have trouble getting me out of this thing. I've put on a tremendous amount of weight back here. And I've eaten my other survivors. <laughs> Quickly, I should add. They'd been there uh, an entire week and were too weak from breathing natural gas to climb out. <laughs> The next day, there was another gas explosion. Did they, did they live? Yeah, those guys lived. Okay. 
The next day, there was another gas explosion in a new tunnel at crib number three. The shaft was destroyed. This time, six sandhogs died, and everything was flooded. So what, uh, is anybody alarmed? <laughs> is anyone like, well, this really isn't working out? It's gone fine. They're just Irish. That's probably what they said, too. Yeah, seriously. Well, put the canary, the, the Irish back in. Um, uh, a few men clung to the sides of the ruins until a boat came to get them 24 hours later. Oh! Did you see that dude in Australia who had the crane fall on him? Uh-uh. This dude in Australia, like, he, he was basically, like, using a little crane in his yard or something like that. Some, like, kind of fairly small deal. But he's using a little crane. Whatever. Topples over, lands on him, and he's submerged in water, and he has to hold himself in a push-up. Just so that his like nose and mouth are like up there, and he's in there for like three hours, oh. like in that position. <laughs> the idea of holding up for twenty four hours. Oh my god! Like I just don't think I have the stamina for that. No, I think at like hour eight, eight nine minutes. Yeah, oh minutes. Wow, you go quick. Yeah, well, I'm tired. Yeah, I mean that would be amazing. Well, guys, this is where we die. Like, so what? long. Yeah. Um, but then there were no big accidents for over a year. And then in December 1902, another explosion in Crib 3, uh, four sandhogs died. Now, this may not be surprising, but the life expectancy of a sandhog was What's not an great. hour? <laughs> an hour. <laughs> well, I mean, how long do you last as a sandhog? Uh, being immigrants and working together in such, under such conditions, they became very close. They were not well paid, which is just amazing. Yeah. Why would you pay them more? Why would you pay them well? well yeah. They're just all dying. Yeah. Uh, you know what? The next guy to make it to a year gets a million. <laughs> That's never happening. But these immigrants were proud uh, of what they were doing, knowing that it was very important to the city. And they all knew that the entire project would be over once they finished crib number five. Mm. Construction on crib number five started in August 1914. This crib was to have two existing parallel tunnels. One pumping station would connect to crib four, then extend uh, with a single tunnel to a point five miles north of the Cayuga River mouth. So it's a fucking long one. Yeah. So crib number five is towed out and sunk at the five mile point. Then the sandhogs started tunneling toward each other from cribs four and five. But uh, this was a different operation from previous tunnel construction. Usually the way the process worked was city officials got bids from two private contractors and picked the best one. But this time, the city withdrew the bids and took over the project itself. So Cleveland's running this shit. Oh, boy. You like that? I don't know if I do. I don't think – I mean – it's hard to tell because everybody's dying. Right. Well, that was the city's point that with all the deaths, the city should take over – Okay. And it seemed to be working. For two years, all went well. No accidents, no deaths. They used the latest and best technology, a 128-foot shaft in the middle of a 100-foot steel square, which featured an elevator, which could bring sandhogs down to remove the dirt. So it's it's a fancy operation now. Okay. There was an airlock and powerful air compressor. Sure. But this was after the project managers learned what the bends were. They figured that out after many Santogs died. So they were. So they put the elevator in because they kept just killing, <laughs> killing guys, bringing them up. Oh my god! How come? 
why is it that they, they're fine down there and then you get them up at the top and they're dead? Hmm. We shouldn't be bringing them back up. That's the problem. Right. Leave them down there. Leave them there. down there, yeah. To pre- prevent cave-ins, they had a hydraulic shield which moved along as they dug and kept the ceiling up. They were not digging by hand but had a, a tunneling machine. Also, the Sandhogs now lived at crib number five for months at a time. Oh, my God. They're like mole men. Yeah, they're living down in the fucking bottom of the lake. Uh, yeah. This is some chud. You ever see chud? No. Cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers? I'm aware of what it is. I've never well, seen this it. Is, this, is what, this is the origin story of them. Oh, cool. They would work for eight hours and sleep for eight hours, and then I guess party for the other eight hours in wow. the crib so, area. I, look, I'd move underground if you guaranteed me eight hours of partying and sleep a day. This would be a good place for the next Alien movie. Yeah. I'll make a phone call. So this is all happening at the bottom of Lake Erie. The supply boat would come once in a while. There was no radio, no telephone, no telegraph. By the summer of 1916, the two tunnels were just a couple of months away from being finished, and everyone was pretty fired up. Then, on July 22, 1916, Shield driver William Moore was working on crib number five when he saw the floor beneath him suddenly rupture into a foot-wide rift. He then heard a roar of natural gas burst out of the rift. So he ran as fast as possible to tell his supervisors. This is making me nervous. Yeah, it's not good. Veteran Sandhog. It's like Indiana Jones moment. It opens a foot wide. No, it's, I wouldn't. And then goes. (sighs) Veteran Sandhog Patrick Delaney heard Moore's story of the hole. He immediately quit. (laughs) I'm done. Okay, then. That's See you it. later, boys. Yep, I'm done. Goodbye. Bye. Great to meet everyone. Uh, he was taken ashore on a boat. And when he was on the boat, he said, quote, there's enough gas in that tunnel to light up Cleveland. God, he must have been so excited when he was on the boat. Oh. The next day, the midnight crew had to stop working at 4 a.m. when gas leaks forced them out of the tunnels. The air compressor was broken. City officials told the crew foreman to build a barrier at the end of the tunnel. So to stop the gas from... Okay. Right? The next day, the crew refused to enter the tunnel. Gus Van Dusen, the Crib 5 tunnel chief, met with the water commissioner and the utilities director. Phil, I have something to tell both of you guys. Yeah. I'm not even a German. I was Irish the whole time. It's Van Dusen. No. What was that? It's a Van Dusen. Uh, and he was... So he is unequivocally told... Keep workers out of the tunnel until it's tested, safe for gas, and the broken air compressor is repaired. Okay. So he followed that order. So Van Dusen. Next part. Right. So he's up top. Yeah. He gives the orders down. To not do anything. To the crew chief, Harry Vokes. To not do anything. Who heard. Said them into the tunnel. What? (laughs) Why would. I mean, I knew he was going to, but. (laughs) He questioned it at first. But then he asked the supervisor if he could take a crew down, and the supervisor said, quote, yeah, conditions permitting. <laughs> God. Well, that's, so that's a no. That is a, That should be a no. That's a no, then. Yeah, it seems fine. I don't know. Yeah, as long as there's no gas. Sandhog uh, Jay Flynn was then told to go down into the tunnel, and he immediately quit. These guys. Okay, then. All right, so, uh, so go down there or go live. Okay. I'll be a painter. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to paint. Yeah, you know what? Gonna get a new job. I'm gonna paint. Yeah. Uh, but seven guys still wanted the job, 
or they didn't care or whatever. So they went down. An hour and 22 minutes later, an engineer at the turbines and an elevator operator, so they're in two separate places, noticed the same problem at the same time. Their air gauges flailed frantically up to beyond 30 PSI and then down to 5 PSI in the tunnel where the crew was. This meant there was an explosion. The elevator operator could smell gas. They tried to contact the crew, but there was no response. This is like aliens. <laughs> <laughs> the elevator operator, operator went down and came back up to report the tunnel was flooded with gas and the men were trapped. So they decided to try a rescue. Seven men went down. They made it about 100 feet when they began to just drop. The guys that didn't collapse tried to carry the others out. Of the seven who went down, only two survived. Oh, my God. Now, all the sand sand hogs who were not trapped in the tunnel were on the crib platform, scared and unsure what to do. So everyone's, like, gotten out of the fucking bottom. I'd quit. But there's also no way to get off there. Yeah, I'd still quit. It's not like there's a boat. There's no boat there. A boat comes once in a while. Yeah. The other guy took the boat off the fucking thing. Oh, yeah. That was a bold move. Yeah. The steam whistle distress call was sounded, and rockets were fired into the night sky. But with all the factory smoke and fog on the shore of Lake Erie, they didn't think their distress was seen or heard by the U.S. Life Saving Station downtown. The men were now near panic. They needed two things. Pull motors, which were the only things uh, they knew of for CPR. Without pull motors, they didn't know how to resuscitate fallen crew. What what is a pull motor? I don't know. I didn't look it up, but okay. it's some sort of some sort of it's a doohickey res- that goes over the face part. Uh, and to get down there, they needed smoke helmets. Then two small boats from the freighter, the Star of Jupiter, pulled up, and they took the two injured men off for medical aid. At midnight, a captain of the U.S. Life Saving Station finally arrived in a motor launch, but he said he had no helmets or pull motors. <laughs> Good. I just wanted to see how everyone's doing. I heard your signal and I bought, uh, I brought, uh, well, me. Hello. I wanted to drop off some banana bread. How is everyone? Oh, my mother makes the best. Oh, it's so good. How many of you are dead now? Uh, So he comes at a motor launch. One sand hog looks at that he has no helmets or pull motors and said, is there anyone who knows... About air? Oh, God, my God, is there anyone on this boat who knows anything? Does anyone know about air? Air. You're very desperate when you're like, I have questions about air. Just after midnight, Gus Van Dusen arrived from his home with volunteer rescuers, and they immediately descended. Okay. Uh, And they immediately became victims of the gas. Someone then called Van Dusen's wife and told her that he had died. The gas is basically the ring. (laughs) Yeah, but it's like guys walking into a fire at this point. Like, everyone's like, I'm going to go into the fire to save the people that died from the fire. Well, uh, nobody's checked on anyone in 15 minutes. And like they said, if they weren't back in 15, someone should check on them. We should go. All right. Let's take half of us. Okay. Uh, so Van Dusen's wife then called her son, Thomas Clancy, who was a taxi driver, and told him what was going on and that their father was dead. Clancy grabbed a buddy, took over a boat, and headed out to Crib 5. Right after he got there with his friend, a fire tugboat arrived. The fire tug 
did not have masks or pull motors. Yeah. Well, why would they? Why, who, why, who, why well, would they anybody that have that? For? Yeah, it's just going to weight it down. Desperate, Clancy and his friend wrapped wet towels around their faces and descended into the tunnel. Wow. They came back up with the bodies of Patrick Sullivan, John McCormick, and Harry Hatcher. It was now 4 a.m. The explosion had happened at 9.22 p.m. Water Commissioner Jaeger ordered the air pressure Water shut. Water Commissioner Jaeger. Meister. Yeah, because, I mean, literally, like, if you have Jaeger, have some water. <laughs> he orders the air pressure shut off in the tunnel, which eased conditions for the rescuers to head into the tunnel, but at the same time, increased the danger of a tunnel collapse. It's all going fine. It's fine. These are tough choices. The tugboat, meanwhile, came back, this time with oxygen tanks, smoke helmets, and one pull motor. Okay. A firefighter and Clancy's buddy used the helmets. Clancy goes down with just the wet towel wrapped around the head trick like he did before. Yep. They went down in the elevator, and when they came back up, they hadn't rescued anyone, and Clancy had passed out. Okay. Who'd you save? Clancy. He died. (laughs) We saved the guy that went with us. Yeah. Mayor Harry Davis then came out to the crib platform at 5 a.m. And Garrett Morgan also arrived. Okay. He was woken and told about the unfolding disaster. I wonder who's going to come in more handy in this situation. Uh, A cop had seen one of Morgan's demonstrations and begged his supervisors to let him to ask Morgan for help. So Morgan was now on the platform in his pajamas. That's pretty Did great. Yeah, honestly. All right, what's the problem? Morgan also brought his brother, Frank, to help and extra masks. Morgan asked for volunteers to help him and his brother. Only two of the men stepped forward, one of whom was Clancy. <laughs> okay, it's, easy. That's right. Yeah. Uh, he'd already gone on twice and passed out once. So the four men put on Morgan's masks. So out of all these guys, only one. Yeah, one regular guy one was regular like, guy. all right, yeah. Uh, okay. I'll help my brothers. The four men put on the masks and prepared to go down. Just then, Mayor Harry Davis stepped forward, looked Morgan in the eyes, and said goodbye. Uh, but he's staying up here? Yeah, that's a pretty so cool he's thing. he's just like, you're going to die. Later. Right. Yeah. Later, Ed. Uh, the men then descended in the elevator. They ended up making four trips and brought up all the men, whether they were dead or alive. Mayor Harry Davis told Morgan, quote, the city will take care of you for this. Mm -hmm. Uh, What? Sure. A month later, an inquest was held because of all the angry newspaper editorials about the disaster. The editorials questioned why the city had taken over the project. At the inquest... In Cleveland City Hall, fingers were initially pointed at everyone that they could be pointed at. Van Dusen, Vokes, a city chemist who had failed to test a tunnel air sample. And then witnesses started to blame officials for the safety issues, including a lack of resuscitation equipment, a telephone, and an attending physician. Yeah, all must. So as soon as they turn it on the city and they're like, wait, you guys were doing this job. Why didn't you have all the stuff out there? Yeah, they're like, uh... uh well, that's when the inquest was completely stopped by Mayor Harry Davis. Good. So he is a good guy. Good. Just making sure. <laughs> Who declared, quote, I believe every man did what he thought was best. It's easy to criticize. But how does anyone know he wouldn't have done the same under similar circumstances? Huh? And he, All right. 
And done. Okay. Any questions? Any? Nope. Okay, good. Great. He concluded that no one was at fault. The formal inquest verdict officially held no one responsible. Good. Those are always very Those satisfying. are very, yeah. Morgan was completely ignored for his heroics. They did not even ask him to testify. Of course not. And to top it off, when Harry Davis gave rescuers the Carnegie Hero Fund Commission medals for their efforts, he did not give one to Morgan. <laughs> He's such a fucking piece of shit. <laughs> At this point, you're almost, if you're Morgan, you're like, I'm happier to not get any of your stuff because I don't want you to feel like you did anything. <laughs> Meanwhile, they kept digging for the work crew and by August had recovered nine bodies. During the recovery effort, an Italian immigrant fell into the lake and drowned. Boy, that's not... Fucking... What about swimming? I know. What happened to swimming? Jesus Christ. I'm just going to grab this brick right... Oh! That made 20 dead from the tragedy at Crib 5. I think we're going to have to put an asterisk next to the Italian. Yeah. I don't know if we count that as 20. Work continued on the five-mile crib and was finished in 1918. During the entire construction of all of the cribs, 70 men died. Oh, my God. It's crazy. Yeah. Morgan was permanently affected by his four trips into the tunnel. He suffered health problems for the rest of his life. And he kept asking the city to pay for his medical expenses. And, and the then mayor... when they did, what's the next part? <laughs> and the mayor's office always refused. Uh. But a group of independent citizens knew what had happened. And in 1918, they had a gold and diamond medal made and awarded it to Garrett Morgan for what he had done. Good. So that's nice. Yeah. Some randos. To... Hey, we made this out of foil and a bowling trophy. Congrats. Hey, there you go. Uh, Morgan bought 400 acres of land and turned it into an exclusive all-black country club. Wow. This really pissed off Mayor Harry Davis. That's dynamite. But there wasn't much he could do about it. Uh, Oh, to be a white guy to get that invite? Yeah, I'm just going to the all-black country club. I'm the only white guy. Anyway, have fun, losers. Harry was known as a corrupt mayor who ignored the warnings of the U.S. Army Surgeon General during the 1918 influenza pandemic, who warned that the disease was headed right for Cleveland. Harry skipped meetings and delayed action. When he was counseled to close down public meeting places, he half did and insisted saloons and gambling parlors should remain open. Because of this... More people died from the flu in Cleveland than any other major American city. Jeez. Harry's a good mayor. I'm not going to take the bait. On June 2nd, 1919, 10 homes of politicians and law enforcement officials in the United States were bombed by communists. Harry had pushed the prosecution of two communists and cracked down on a May Day demonstration. So while Harry and friends were on the front lawn, communists threw a pipe bomb through the back window of his house. The house suffered severe damage, but no one was hurt. That just made him popular, so he ran and won the governorship. After allowing 
tons of people to die because he was a fucking idiot who wouldn't close bars. Yeah, but bars. Dave, he survived. A- he didn't. He was on the front lawn. Well, the point is, really fought hard. After uh, his term, he went back to Cleveland and was mayor for another term. He died in 1950. Morgan was the first black man in Cleveland to own a car. And, of course, he worked on the car until he understood how it worked and developed a friction drive clutch. Wow. He's just fucking ridiculous. Wow. In 1923, Morgan patented the first three-way traffic signal after he saw an accident between a streetcar and a horse-drawn car. He's the fucking best person ever. I mean, honestly, out of all the inventions I've heard from one inventor, he's really got... No, it's crazy. He's a fucking genius. Yeah. Like he's like a time traveling Shark Tank. <laughs> uh, the patent uh, for the three way traffic signal was such a massive improvement. General Electric bought it from him for forty thousand dollars, over a half million dollars in today's money. Wow. Morgan Deli, uh, Still died. Kind of a not a great deal. No. Morgan Dahl died on July 27th, 1963. Just before his death, he was honored by the United States government for his traffic signal invention. After his death, he was given a place in history, officially declared a hero of the Lake Erie rescue. Today, Cleveland's waterfront area is named for Garrett Morgan, and he is celebrated as a genius and humanitarian. Wow. And Harry Davis. a Cleveland story. Harry Davis is a piece of shit. Well, I, you know, I'd, uh, yeah, I just, it's, you know, sometimes it's just fun to hear these stories that you, uh, are one offs. <laughs> we signed cribs. Uh, <laughs> oh, hey there, everybody. It's Gareth, you know, from this, uh, this podcast. Uh, listen, I've got some stand up shows. I'm inviting the Garmy the Gareth Army, to join me for. I will be in Fort Collins, Colorado, August 18th and August 19th. I will be in Minneapolis, Minnesota, August 24th through August 26th at Acme. I will be going to the UK in September. Please join me. I will be in Glasgow, September 13th, London, September 15th, Dublin, September 17th, and September 19th, Manchester, Birmingham, September 20th, Bristol, September 22nd, and Cardiff, September 24th. And then in November, I'll be in Australia. November 10th, almost sold out, I think. I'll be in Melbourne, Australia. Then I will be in Northbridge, Australia on November 15th. Adelaide, November 16th. Canberra, November 17th. Brisbane, November 18th. And then I will be in uh, Sydney on November 24th. Go to GarethReynolds.com for tickets. Garmy, let's get at it after it let's see you there hey there people listening to the dollop uh this is gareth yes the same guy i listen i have a new podcast called we're here to help that i'm doing with my friend jake johnson it's basically a call and advice show where we don't say that we're professionals because we aren't but we try to help people with problems that are important to them you can listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts and it is out right now so go listen to we're here to help with Jake and Gareth. We're here to help with Gareth and Jake. I don't remember how we did it, but either way, fun. Half Hour comes out Tuesday, August 22nd, and the episodes will be out every Tuesday and Friday. We're here to help. 